0: Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ's followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. We're going to look at this from a little bit different slant, from the slant of an interview. You know, there are... Talk shows and radio talk shows, all kind of interview shows today, they're really the rage of our age. Some of them are silly, you know, when Geraldo interviews women who have married aliens from outer space, things like that. Some of them are exploitive, uh, with purient interests that are pushed to new lows, namely new lows of shock and sex that really sells in America. But there are a number of interviewers who provide some really positive and insightful and helpful insights into people. We get the opportunity to peer inside the lives of people who really are the change agents of our society and who impact us in very powerful ways. We get a sense of who they are and and if the interviewer is very skilled of what drives them and of what things in their past have shaped them to be the kind of persons they are and, and the kind of things that they have chosen to pursue and do. Of all the interviewers on TV, I think the most skilled is Barbara Walters, and uh, whether it is exploring an uh, American hero like a Norman Schwarzkopf, or whether it's exploring a controversial revolutionary like Louis Farrakhan, uh, she has the ability to unlock these people in ways that allow us to see inside their hearts and their minds. What I would like to do this morning is take a look at Barbara Walters moving back in time and how she would interview the Apostle John. What if she could move back and meet this very famous figure that we have had the privilege of looking at, this letter that he's written, for a number of months? And what if in this interview he was granted the privilege of not only his time, but of seeing how his influence impact time future as well? Well, this morning I want to imagine that for you, and I want to give you a setting that you can think about as we move through this passage this morning. Picture, if you will, John and Barbara seated in the shady cover of some uh, high mountain meadow. And they're sitting there, and below them is the Roman town of Iconium in the province of Galatia. And added to that backdrop, as you look down across one of those valleys, is one of those famous architectural wonders called the Roman viaduct, carrying water, aqueduct, carrying water into the city of Iconium. John looks comfortable as he's sitting there with Barbara. His hair is thinning because he's now much more older than he was when he first started this spiritual pilgrimage of his. His skin is dark brown, almost leather-like, from years of travel and of moving through the empire. His robe and his sandals are at best ordinary, but his dark brown eyes communicate from the very start of this interview a deep warmth and friendliness for the one who is about to interview him. Can you picture that? You see that shady mountain meadow corner with the city below? And so the interview begins. And of course, Barbara begins with probably what would be the most obvious question. She would probably ask John, what was it like to be with Jesus? And he would make a few remarks about his experience of having walked with Jesus Christ and how that felt and how he was awed to have been selected to have the privilege of that. And then she probably would move to some personal questions about his upbringing and his family and how they felt about the things that he was doing. You know, things that begin to somewhat relax you even more into the interview, as skillful interviewers know how to do. But then, as she always does, and if you watch some of the interviews that she's done in the past, there comes a place where she begins to dig deeper. And that's where we come to our passage this morning the questions become more substantive, if not on the verge of somewhat controversial. You see, Barbara Walters always does her homework. And uh, she wants you to leave feeling like you have really grasped not only the man, but also his message. So she asks three questions that I think John would answer out of this chapter 5, at least the first five verses that we're going to look at three substantive, if not controversial, questions. She would begin, maybe in a somewhat altered tone, to hint of some of the depth that's to come. She would say to John, John, you are the only apostle to use the term in your writings, born again. You're the only one. What do you mean by that term? Now remember, John. we've given John the ability to peer into the future. And so John would very quickly point out, What he does not mean by that term, and what he doesn't mean is what media types like Barbara have twisted it to mean. So, in a very uh, pleasant manner, he would say to Barbara these words. You speak, Barbara, as if born-again Christian is a certain classification of Christian. Are you implying by that question that there is another kind of Christian? What other kind of Christian is there? You see Barbara, when you speak of born-again Christian, you are really giving a redundancy of terminology. It's like saying two twins or a teenage adolescent. You see, to be born again is to be a Christian. And to be a Christian is to be born again. Those two terms are one and the same. They're synonymous. And when you use them together, It becomes redundant. Then I think he would quickly point out that this term, born again, that she implied was his term, he would turn and say, you know, that term I use because it fell from the lips of Jesus himself. It was with Jesus who said, and by the way, Barbara, he said it to a very religious man, that you must, and I think the emphasis was on must, you must be born again. He also said later, you must be born from above. And finally, you must be born of the Spirit. And then he completed that line with, "Or you will not enter into the kingdom of God. John would say if I added anything to what Jesus has already said, it would be in this letter that I wrote, of 1 John in chapter 5. And I summarize those three phrases, born again and born from above and born from the Spirit, simply as, in verse 1, born of God. And then I think he would say, let's read it together. Well, let me read it for you. Verse 1 says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now you might underline that unique phrase of John, born of God. Actually, it's a verb, and the verb is in what Greeks call the perfect tense, and it would read this way, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It's looking back to a past event. Then he says, you might notice that the word or the verb believe is in the present tense. It's not just believes, it's whoever is believing. It's talking about an ongoing process that is occurring now. Whoever is believing right now that Jesus is the Christ, and when it uses the Christ, it sets it off as a title. We often use Jesus Christ as if Christ was His last name, but it's a title. Jesus is the Christ. And John means by that that Jesus is more than a great man. Jesus is more than a creed that you recite at church. Jesus is more than some abstract theological concept of idealism that we should strive for. The person who comes in the Biblical way, to understand Jesus as the Christ, is one who has come to see Jesus in His heart in a unique moment as God. Uniquely God. And it has created a tremendous catharsis inside His soul and spirit to finally realize, not just intellectualize, but to realize from His soul and His spirit that Jesus Christ is God, the supreme authority over all life, God's Messiah, mankind's Lord, the one with whom all of life should be built around, the one from whom we get approval or should for all our decisions and in whom all our hopes are placed. The one who has gotten to this place has gotten there because of the unique work of God in him or in her. And how they got there was by this special birth that they did not cause, but God caused to happen in them. Born from above. Born of the Spirit. Born again. Born of God. The point is, God did something to them, supernaturally, mysteriously inside their heart and mind. One writer has described this new birth this way, as a drastic one-of-a-kind act on fallen human nature by which the Holy Spirit brings about a change in the person's whole outlook in life. He bends their mind, their will, their affections, their fallen soul that has never thought of God, not really interested in God, wouldn't make decisions about God, but has taken at and bent them in a supernatural act that God has imposed on them in a way that has bent it affectionately towards Christ in a moment of time, and it will be that way forever. See, that's what it means to be born again. It's a new birth. You no longer believe in this world, you no longer believe in your own abilities as the final rite of passage, no longer believe in power, You no longer believe in fate. You no longer believe in religion. You no longer believe even in yourself. Because what has occurred in you is an urgency that comes from a supernatural source to believe in Jesus as the Christ. It's a supernatural event. When I first became a Christian, when I first heard the Gospel of Christ, I had no real previous church-going experience. I was not a member of a church per se. My family was not much interested in religious things. And everything I was hearing was new. And on one particular evening, I was challenged by an individual to, quote, accept Christ. He made a lengthy presentation of the Gospel of Christ. Very well, I might say. And asked me if I would like to accept Christ. And I said, yes. But now I'm a pastor looking back on that event from many years later. And I can honestly tell you that in making that decision it would have been extremely easy for me to have let go of that decision and never thought about it ever again the next morning. My faith was meager, my understanding was at best superficial. And I made this decision But the next day, when the influences of college life and college excitement and enthusiasm came back, I could have walked away from that in a minute and never thought about it for the next 25 years. What I did not realize, though, in the meagerness of my own effort in that moment, is that I was encountering a supernatural God. A God who I soon discovered had taken that meager effort and moved on me and had changed and altered my very nature. Even in spite of my meager understanding and even in spite of my superficial faith, God, who is neither meager nor superficial, had supernaturally used that simple faith to transfix Himself on me and to bend my mind, will, emotions, and spirit towards Him in a way that they would ever be pointed towards Christ, who now, I discovered, was my life. I'd been born again. But do you see? The effort wasn't from here. The energy was from up here, from above, of the Spirit of God. Never before had I hungered for spiritual things, and yet after that day I found myself, mysteriously so, hungering for spiritual things. Never before had I understood the Bible, yet in the weeks and months that followed I picked it up and it was as if I was reading something that I would known all my life. And I couldn't understand that. It seemed supernatural. Never before had I thought of Jesus Christ, but now I felt drawn to Him, over and over again, as if he was a trusted friend, when in fact, I hardly even knew him. i just met him. Why did all that happen? Because I had experienced a new birth and he did something to me. That's what you need to hear. I share that because so many think of Christianity as a religion, or as a church, or as a set of beliefs, that you may choose to accept intellectually and embrace Somewhat comfortably from a distance. But I want you to know, real Christianity, the kind that John would talk about to Barbara, eyeball to eyeball, is nothing less than an encounter, an experience, an encounter with God, an encounter which mysteriously yet radically changes your very nature so that Christ becomes your life. You think about Him. You can't get away from Him. You can't get Him because He follows you. He's in you. Your life, the Apostle Paul says, has been hidden in Christ. The real reason I continued to believe in Christ long after that night is because God had changed me forever. And when John speaks in verse 1, he says, whoever is believing, and he's talking about right now, continues to keep believing that Jesus is the Christ The very center of his soul is one who has been at some time in the past born again. He's had this encounter with God. Now, do you know why I mention that? Because so often the church begins to veer off course and we talk, and I don't mean this in any sensational way, but almost glibly about, yeah, I've accepted Christ. But you know, when you encounter the term born again, the real question, but has God changed your nature? Has there been an encounter that has changed your nature? People can move all the way through life and draw from the resources of Christian family and great churches and spiritual things, but they can maneuver in such a way that they can talk the talk, they can even draw profitably from the principles, but never meet the Christ who issued them To be spiritually born again is to have an encounter with the living God. Nothing less than that. And I think as John would seek to explain this supernatural content to Barbara, one of the things I can't help but think that he would do would be to turn and to look into the camera at the audience that was watching this interview and simply ask, have you had this new birth? Can you look back in your life and point at some point in time to that kind of encounter that has made your life in Christ? Well, I think Barbara would break the silence with a second question. She would say, John, Christians are always talking about love. How is your love different from anybody else's? And I think John would begin to explain the difference lies in the fact that Christian love is defined not so much in terms of how we feel about something or someone, but in how we are committed to God and to His Word, which gives specific boundaries to our feelings and to our actions under His authority. Look at verse 2. It says, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, not when we love them, which you would expect, but when we love God, and observe His commandments. Though Christian love often engages our natural affections, John would tell Barbara, Christian love is not ruled by natural affections. In fact, many times Christian love demands that we swim against the current of our natural inclinations, and that's what makes Christian love distinct. For instance, we know we love the children of God when we hear some juicy bit of gossip about someone that we know but rather than do what is so natural for our instincts, which is to take it and enjoy it and pass it on, we instead resist it, refuse it, and it ends right there. Because we observe His commandments in 1 Peter 3.10. We know we love the children of God when we see them in sin, yet instead of talking to others about it, which is so natural, we instead do a much more courageous thing, and we instead, out of a godly concern and courage, We go and lovingly seek to restore them because we seek to observe Galatians 6.1. We know we love the children of God when we seek to reconcile a damaged relationship even though every feeling within us screams forth, we didn't do anything, we're not at fault, they're the problem. And yet against that current, we swim upstream and we go and we seek to reconcile with that brother or sister. Why? Because we observe Matthew five, twenty-three and 24. We know we love the children of God when someone asks us what we really think, and we tell them the truth in gentleness, rather than shade the truth to escape any kind of personal uncomfortableness. I remember driving home from basketball practice with my son after I coached with his, his team, and I was talking about practice, and somewhere along... As we turned into the neighborhood, I said, well, Garrett, what do you think is da- of Dad as coach? And there was a moment of quiet, uncomfortably so for me. And then he said, well, Dad, do you really want to know? And he offered me in gentleness a few correctives of my coaching style in accordance with Ephesians 5.25. It says, speak the truth in love. To one another. We know we love the children of God when we refuse to run, but instead we bravely fight for the vows that we made years ago when we said for better or for worse, even when everything within us says it's the worst. We do so because we observe Malachi 2, 13-15. We know we love the children of God when we refuse to return insult for insult, or evil, for evil, but we give a blessing instead. And we do so because we observe 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. We know we love the children of God when we wait for the sake of purity rather than take for the sake of self. According to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8. We know we love the children of God when instead of ignoring a desperate situation that we find some of our friends in, instead we intervene And we say to them, enough. Enough. You're out of control. Enough. You're in denial. Enough. You're deceived. That's enough. I want you to know that there are individuals and couples that sit in our body this day. Different. Reconciled. Because a few people had the courage to intervene and say enough. Just like it says in Proverbs twenty-seven six, when it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now I know for some of you, as I talk about those boundaries that biblical love has, there may be some of you saying, boy, that sounds heavy. That sounds hard. Maybe too hard. Well, look at the next verse, verse 3. I think John anticipated that. For he says, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are what? not burdensome. They might look that way. It's the Greek word barus. It means irksome. His commandments may look on surface appearance irksome, irritating, heavy. You might say, they're painful. They're a pain. The love demands of the Bible, quite frankly, make no sense to non-Christians. They look repressive, oppressive, archaic, restricting. To young Christians, the love demands the love definitions of the Scripture may seem unreasonable. Why do I have to do that? Why do I have to do it this way? Do I have to do it this time? And you know, when you begin to hear young Christians say that as they hear the tenets of Scripture, it makes me think of my young children who when I say, you need to make up your bed, you need to clean up your room, you need to help mom wash the dishes, you need to mow the lawn, you're old enough to make some money, and they'll say the same thing, because those things look burdensome. They're going to restrict me from my freedoms. Uh, they're, they're too hard. They're, they're heavy. It's going to ruin my Saturday morning. And so they say, why? And isn't there another time? Or couldn't I do it later? Or isn't there some way to escape this? Or couldn't... Here's the word I hear. Couldn't I skip it just this once? <laughs> Did you know I've had spiritual adolescents sit around my table and use the exact words when I said, you know, the Scripture says you need to do this. This is is how to really love that person. And they'll say, couldn't I skip it just this once? Because it looks hard. It looks burdensome. You see, in their youthfulness, they cannot see the profit, the freedom, the satisfaction that these biblical boundaries will ultimately bring. And yet, in ignoring these boundaries, you know what they find in the end? They don't escape pain. They only increase the pain in their life. One of the marks of a Christian uh, seasoned veteran, a spiritual veteran, is that the Bible no longer is a threat. The Bible is an invitation into an adventure that will ultimately be profitable. It's it's hard at points, but it's never heavy for a veteran. It's challenging, but never irritating. It's not a threat, but there is almost an anticipation of a future thrill when they hear some lofty standard that John says is not burdensome. And that's because veterans know that in every command and principle of Scripture, there is life, not death. There is liberty, not limitation. The goal is not to limit you. There are secret delights and experiences that a veteran has had, and with every new Scripture knows that there are more to be had. There are secret delights not heavy burdens. I I would challenge you sometime to read Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the Bible, 176 verses. Only two of those 176 verses do not refer to the Word of God. In every one of those verses except two, it says in one way or another how delightful the Bible is to one who really understands what it's trying to do. How much it's profitable. For instance, in verse 72 it says, The law of thy mouth is better to me than a thousand pieces of gold and silver. Verse 24 says, Thy testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 167 says, My soul keeps thy testimonies. I love them exceedingly. Do you think of the Bible that way? When you you come to a crisis, when you come to a point of discord with a friend or failure in your life? Do you open the Bible with an expectancy that there's a way out that will ultimately bring life? Or does the Bible seem heavy? John would tell Barbara that Christian love is a biblical love. And in the Bible, Christian love is spelled out in very specific terms. That at times will go beyond or against Our natural inclinations. But whose final outcome for the veteran brings amazingly, not less life, but more life. And more freedom. And more satisfaction. And more openness. And more transparency. Not less. Now I can only imagine Barbara Walters at this moment because I've seen her do this before after somebody has made some passionate appeal like that. She would sit there and Gaze into that person's eyes. There would just be a moment of, of contemplation. And then she would say to John, You really believe that, don't you? And he would say, With all the warmth and the dignity of an apostle, Absolutely. I really do believe it. The question for us here is do we believe it? Because if we believe it, we will love in a very specific way. Well, Barbara's face might remain skeptical, but then she presses on with another question. One final question, she says, John, you often speak about overcoming the world, but let me ask you, what's so wrong with this world? It's a good question. I think he would answer and say, You know, Barbara, we Christians look at the world in two different ways. In fact, there are two different worlds for us there is the physical world that God created, and we see that as something to be enjoyed. We need to protect it, but we also need to enjoy it. On the other hand, we see a spiritual world with influences and forces and philosophies and and powers, invisible forces, that are both in us and around us, and which seek to capture and enslave us with fanciful facades that look real good at a moment in time, but whose ultimate destiny is to prove futile and even destructive. Barbara, it's Christians who find fault with the second world, not the first. Which to us is like that black hole that you all just discovered with the Hubble telescope. You know, you saw it, and what spectacular pictures there were of that black hole. But Barbara, don't you understand that a black hole, by its very definition, is a collapse? Don't you know it is a spectacular collapse? And we view this world, this spiritual world, as spectacular. It's grand, it's seductive, but it's a spectacular collapse. Regardless of how good this world may appear, with its emphasis on power and intellect and beauty, it is a world that is caving in on itself and in the process like that black hole, is seeking to draw everything in its power down with it. That's how we see the world. How do you overcome these forces when they are so constant? And in fact, when those forces are found to be within your very heart. How do you do it when the forces are day after day and so constant? When you have to hold up year after year Especially as moral standards fall lower and lower, and wrong is said to be right, and everyone has an excuse why they did it. How do you do that? In verses 4 and 5, I think John gives three very simplistic but yet very profound answers to the questions he's just raised. First, look in verse 4. He says, Whatever is born of God, it's that that overcomes the world. You see it there? And notice the word in verse 4, at least at the first line, is the word whatever. I hear Christians over and over say, whoever. It's whatever. He is not speaking here of people. He is speaking of resources, like he's just mentioned, the commandments of God, that are made available to us by God, namely God's Word and God's Spirit. It's these things that are resources for us so that we might bear up under this suction of the black hole that is around us. And find a way of life, in the end, that is actually better than the world can give. Secondly, at the end of verse 4, John says that although these resources are available to overcome the world, actual victory is only achieved when those resources are activated by your personal faith. you see it there? He says, and this is the victory. Not the resources. But this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Ultimately, what brings victory in this life is not what God says. As powerful as that is, it's not who God is living within you, as powerful as that is. Ultimately, it comes down to your engagement with those things, and the bridge to those things from your heart into heaven, into those spiritual resources, is simply your trust that you really believe these things to be true. See, so many people never get to the place where they relinquish in absolute abandonment to trust the things of God. They've always got a back door which negates the power. It's faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world. It's simple, but it's so profound. It's the mystery that the greatest intellects in the world have never figured out. It's just our faith. Our faith. Today I'm afraid many Christians are settling not for the conquering that you see in verses 4 and 5, but for a much lower goal that I call coping. Now I want you to listen very carefully for a moment. Every Christian, every Christian here feels the pull of a black hole. It may come from pain that's lingering from your past, that seeks to cripple and disrupt your function in the present. It may come from pleasures, sexual and otherwise, that constantly demand fulfillment for you. It may come from people who make life just miserable for you. It may be from problems that are compulsive for you, maybe addictive and certainly constant. But today's Christian, I am afraid, has in a subtle but powerful way moved away from faith and has found what he thinks is an adequate replacement for faith. But it's not. And it comes in the form of a counselor. A person who can help me cope, get me by, help me make it, but who ultimately never brings the victory that I think the biblical revelation talks about. Now I want you to know there is certainly a place for counselors. And I for one as a pastor am very thankful for the counselors that are in our city and especially for those godly men and women who are in our church who provide such a wonderful service. And when I speak in the next few moments, my point is not to denigrate in any way the profession of counseling, but for what a large majority of the body of Christ has done in regards to that profession by, spirit, by steering their spirituality off course to lesser things rather than the higher spiritual calling that comes by faith. I believe many counselors, and they even tell me this, and i felt this myself, they know that when that person walks in, they're being used. It doesn't take many sessions before they know this person is seeking to use them as a crutch in a way whose mindset, at least from the counselee's side, is in that room, paying those dollars, to simply ask and get this person to help them get by with as little pain as possible, with as much of self intact as possible. The goal is set low. The goal of the church, over the last 15 years as I've watched it, has steered away from, I think, the high calling in Christ, to a much lower goal called coping, getting by, living life on a low grade fever level and just making do, rather than ascending the summit with a radical faith. John would warn us that there is no victory in this approach, nor is there any life change, true life change, because. Coping doesn't require faith. All coping requires is a weekly appointment with my therapist. I found most interesting the observations of Larry Crabb. Most of you know um, Dr. Crabb as a noted Christian counselor. In his most recent book, Finding God, he made the following observations. One is that he exposes in that book what he calls a major ailment that he thinks is plaguing many Christians today. Now this is from a counselor. An ailment more commonly, he says, associated with atheists than Christians. And you know what that ailment is? He says it's unbelief. The lack of courage to believe God at His Word and to entrust themselves in a radical commitment to seeing that through by faith. And seeing God work. He writes, too many Christians have shifted their focus from finding God to finding themselves. And a focus on increased knowledge of self rarely leads to a richer knowledge of God. The obsession many Christians have with counseling points to a refusal to embrace a more painful, but the only truly effective remedy for life, and that's repentance. For many, God is not good, or at least not good enough. To be fully trusted. And this, says Crabb, forms a structure for a Christian system of unbelief. God's just not good enough to be trusted. A counselor can help you cope. But without God, He can never get you to the place where you overcome. Where you win. Faith. Is what brings victory. But you can only exercise faith when thirdly, and now this brings us to verse 5, you are convinced that you can fully trust Jesus Christ with your life. Now notice, Francis Schaeffer used to use the word true truth because he had to add something on truth to make it sound truthful. And I want to use the word fully trust. That's kind of a redundancy in itself because the trust should be full. But in our world today, you have to use terms like that you must be convinced in a way that you can truly and fully trust Jesus Christ with your life. There's an abandonment in trust. Notice in verse 5 we go from the whatever of verse 4 to now we're down to us. The whoever. And who is the one who overcomes the world? Who's the person who's going to win? But the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If you have an unshakable conviction that the Jesus of history is more than a man, but He is the preexistent Son of God, God incarnate, God in the flesh, the Christ, the One upon whom all authority should rest and all your allegiance should pursue. If you really believe that, that He came and He lived and He taught and He died and He resurrected so that you could not have what you want but that you could have the very best. If you believe that, if you really believe that, verse 5, then you will exercise a life-changing faith, verse 4b, and you will draw upon the resources that He has provided, verse 4a. And what you will do is you will live in a way that goes higher than coping. You will conquer. You know the word overcome in those verses, it's used three times there, is the Greek word that we get, well, it's the Greek word Nike. You see it because it's a major marketing firm. It's Nike. And that's what's used here three times. It's symbolizing victory. And I hope that every time you see a Nike commercial or a Nike signature, that what you think is, that is the victory that overcomes the world. It's not going to be people. It's going to be my abandonment in full faith to a God that I know who is there, that I trust and I believe His principles will ultimately work out for victory. You see, victory comes not in finding ourselves. And I want you to know, over the last 20 years, I'm about tired of finding anything more out about me. It's not pretty. I don't need any more of that. But as the Scriptures challenge us to lose ourselves and find God, See, finding God is the victory. I love what Paul says in Galatians 2.20 when he says it this way, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And why? The Son of God who is loving me, and who once gave Himself up for me you believe that? I think Barbara would be ready at this point to end the interview, get a little uncomfortable at that point. But this is where all of life finally rests. Not on all these principles, not on all these grand schemes. It rests the same way it rested for this apostle in a person called Jesus who claims to be the Christ. I'd like to end the interview by turning the interview towards you and ask two questions. And if you can use your imagination for just a couple of more minutes, I want you to think now that you're on that mountainside in that shady corner of the meadow overlooking this beautiful Roman city. And it's just you and me. We're just sitting there and we have the opportunity just for this one moment to get very intimate. And I want to ask you two very personal questions. They're life-changing questions right out of this text. As you look at your life, as you think about the last few years, where you've been and where you've gone, are you coping or are you conquering? Is life on an ascendancy or is it a low-grade fever? Are there a lot of crutches that you're dependent on just to make it or is there a growing celebration of the Christ in your life? That is such an important question. It, it, it in some ways ought to drive us back to say, maybe I better reread this. Maybe, maybe I have been seduced and didn't even know it off course, where these principles now just look like instructions rather than the bread of life. Are you coping or are you conquering? Now that's in the here and now if we know Christ. But now let me, let me push the calendar back a little bit and ask even a, a more personal question. Have you experienced a new birth? I know you experienced church attendance because you're here. But have you experienced a new birth where, where there was a moment in time where it was more than just uh, getting on a roll joining a church, but there was an encounter where, where after it was over, you have felt your mind, your, your heart, your ambitions, your affections being bent in a direction that's almost mysterious to you, but it's Christ. Christ is your life. Christ is the thing you think about. Christ is the one you want to please. Uh, even when you're in sin, there's this draw, this pursuit of Christ inside of you. Because you have been changed. Your very nature is now a throne room for Christ. Have you been born again? That is the most important question you will ever answer. Because without it, you will not enter the kingdom of God. I'd like us to bow our heads for just a moment. And as I finish, I want you to give you the opportunity to do that. Memorial Day is a day of celebrating the freedoms of our country and those who gave their lives for our country and how we appreciate those veterans and those men and women who lost their lives in the service of our country. But today is a memorial day for any who want to find freedom in Christ. But you can't just think about Jesus. You can't just intellectualize about Jesus Christ. You've got to jump and abandon yourself to Him who claimed to be God incarnate. There's no other way. But if you will do that and sincerely believe that, if you will offer up however meager your faith is, but with a heart's desire to know God and to be His. As one who looks into the Scripture often, I believe that He will change your very nature and you will be born from above. Father, as you look on this audience, there may be many here who are just struggling with their faith and what they need is just to return to a faith walk with you, believing you and pursuing you, finding you, not just finding themselves. But I know that there are probably some who the thought of You having to change them in order to ensure the new birth is a new thought. And they may be looking at their lives and crying out to You, Oh God, change me. Alter my very nature so that Christ is at the center. Father, I thank You for those heartfelt prayers. And I pray that You would answer them in a way mysterious to them, but a way that gives them assurance that they have been born again. May they embrace You as Lord, as Savior for their sin. May they embrace You in a way that they know You and that You know them and that there is a wonderful fellowship that immediately begins to take place. But Lord, I pray that they will know that they are born again. Father, we thank You for this hour. We thank You for this holiday weekend and all it represents because it represents sacrifice for freedom. And certainly on this Memorial Day, not only do we give you praise for those who have done that for our country, but we give you praise for doing that for our soul. It's in Jesus' name we offer all of this up, but most importantly ourselves. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.